Welcome to Cambridge Stronger, where culture counts and values matter most. I'm your host, Amy Weber, and joining me today is Anthony Bartlett, president of Bartlett Wealth Management. Thank you for joining me, Anthony. Thank you, Amy. It's a pleasure. Can't wait for the listeners to hear your story, and I look forward, as always, to um, hearing something new that I didn't know about my guests. It's one of my favorite things about this podcast. So let's start at the beginning, where I usually like to start. How did you end up in financial services? Oh, it was 1991. Um, I had graduated college in 1985 in a completely different industry and kind of floated around between jobs and trying to figure out what I really wanted to do when I grew up. And I'd always been interested in money, in investments. It was never really discussed when I was growing up. But I answered an ad in a local paper for a financial advisor. Had a couple of interviews locally, and then they sent me out to Minneapolis, St. Paul for some meetings at the corporate headquarters. And one of those was an assessment. Couple days after I got back, I got a call from the local manager who said, "Yeah, thanks for your time, but corporate just doesn't think you're going to make it in the industry, so we're not going to extend an offer." Um, and somehow I talked myself onto the team, and yeah, that was 32 years ago. So you say somehow, but often the listeners are younger and maybe they don't know the strategies of trying to negotiate your way in. Go into a little bit more detail on that. How did you, what were the things that you brought up to them that made them change their mind? Well, I think, you know, if you ask my mother, I never took no for an answer when I was little. It was always, well, what if? Um, So it was just a conversation of, yeah, I'm not local and I know that, you know, I don't have a natural market. But I'm a hard worker. I've, you know, I played sports growing up, um, and so I think I just, at the mercy of him saying stop calling, he basically said we'll give it a shot. That's great. Persistence is what yes. I'm hearing. Um, just out of curiosity, what because so many people end up in our industry to some extent accidentally or not planned. What was the industry that you graduated with a degree in? What did you? originally? What was the early path? Yeah, it was a bachelor of science in exercise, phys, sports medicine. Yeah, very different. Very different. Very. So, you know, that's a great segue into that whole idea of do not discount our industry just because you don't have a degree in financial services, finance, business. Um, We have so many degrees like yours that are very outside the scope of what people would think would set you up to be very successful in our business. So thank you for sharing that. You made a comment, though, um, as you were sharing that with us about how finances were never really discussed. And I find that to be a fairly common cultural issue, perhaps, back then. Why do you think that is? And do you think it's changed? Do your clients talk more about their finances at the dining room table with their families or, um, you know, each other? Yeah, I think they're starting to. Um, you know, when I grew up, my father was a college professor, you know, well-educated, but money was never discussed. You know, we were together when my dad was home, not traveling. You know, we had dinners together and it was always, you know, tell me about your day. What did you learn today? But money was a taboo topic. So uh, I, I think it's incredibly important to have that today. And I see more families doing that. 
but I think, you know, as you said, it, it was cultural at the time. You just, you know, money wasn't anything you talked about. And when I think about, you know, those conversations and, you know, the psychology of money, I remember my father, you know, using terms like, you know, well, they're filthy rich or they're stinking rich or, you know, if I had their money, I'd burn mine. And it was just this negative connotation with money. And I think we absolutely have to change. And I think those clients, you know, I've got some clients that are fourth generation. And I think the success of that's been where they've had conversations, you know, open conversations at the kitchen table about money and the importance of planning and, you know, not the immediate gratification of spending today, but, you know, saving for tomorrow and the entire insurance conversation, you know, about the what ifs happen. Yeah, I feel like when I'm when I'm interviewing my guests, some of this comes all goes all the way back to the depression era, which I guess just shows you how long it takes to change something like that. And independent advisors in particular hopefully are spending some time at least encouraging their clients to think a little bit more generationally. If there's enough wealth to matter, it should be a generational conversation to some extent. Not even the amount, but more to your point, the complexities of what kinds of instruments are there and what kinds of tools are there and how the next generation can continue to try to build on that legacy. So you've been in the planning business then for over 30 years. And even earlier than that, uh, you did state that your mother was very influential in shaping how you view money and finances. Talk about that. How can parents help that, as we were just discussing, positively influence their kids' attitudes? And how did your mom do that for you? Yeah, well, like I said, you know, was it discussed when I was young, but my first summer job, uh, sweet mama, as we would often refer her to, uh, and the grandkids as sweet Nana, just a woman of immense wisdom. So my first summer job, she said, you go into the bank, Anthony, you're going to open up a bank account and you have to put 50% of your money in there every week. Every time you get paid, 50% goes in. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm a teenager. This is money that I'm making why are you telling me what I need to do with my money? And so I learned that, I guess, quasi-discipline at a relatively young age. And, you know, it's that old marshmallow experiment that was done back at Stanford, right? You know, where they had the little, you know, uh, five-year-olds, six-year-olds where they stuck a marshmallow in front of them and said, you know, you can eat this now or you can wait 15 minutes and you'll get two marshmallows. Um, so I think my mom's lesson of, you know, defer the gratification on all the money was really, really instrumental. Um, and I think, you know, as probably most of us on this call with Cambridge, you have a point in time as a young adult where you might need some financial assistance from your parents. <laughs> and my father was kind of the soft one in the relationship. So I'd very often find myself calling dad, you know, this was after I graduated from college and was trying to figure out life. And I'd have a conversation with dad and, you know, it would get to, you know, can I borrow some money? And his first question was, have you asked your mom? <laughs> and I'd be like, well, yeah, well, not quite. Uh, and my mom was, you know, she was all about giving a hand up 
but not a handout. And it was, we'll loan you the money, Anthony, with a stipulation that you're going to pay it back monthly. And every time I made a payment, she would record it. She would send me a receipt on my payment with the outstanding balance and how many more months that I had uh, to pay that. So yeah, she just was a great influence um, as I was thinking about and learning about money. That's great. I love those stories when I hear them. As I was listening to you, something occurred to me as well, another you know change or evolution, I suppose. I don't know how often parents today are taking their children into a bank to open an account at all. I do think that there's a big difference now uh, with electronic payment forms. And I don't know how many parents even hand cash to kids for allowances. Um, you know, Some people still believe I think cash is really important, but uh, for the younger generations, at least the ones I interact with, cash and definitely checkbooks aren't really important in their lives. They facilitate things very differently. Um, so it'll be interesting to see that the ty- types of changes that adds to these conversations about how younger generations think about money. Do you have any thoughts on that? Do you see your clients working differently? Uh, well, I certainly see, you know, the younger clients, um, you know, it's all about the debit card, the occasional credit card and Venmo, you know, so you're right. I mean, they're not teaching it in school anymore. I remember growing up, you know, we had the home economics class and you learned to, you know, balance a checkbook and a bunch of other uh, components. And today that's just not happening. Yeah. I think a lot of independent advisors in particular, maybe try to fill that gap a little bit from an educational perspective with their clients and the younger generations or clients' children. And, and often they go into schools perhaps and, you know, do some volunteer type information. But um, yeah, there's, there's probably a lot more work to be done there as things change. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's, um, let's talk about your website. On your website, you describe having an aha moment about the different tax and investment strategies that come into the transition to retirement in particular. What is one thing that you wish your clients knew? So now we were talking about young clients. We're shifting to those <laughs> that are retiring, some of them probably still young these days. But what's one thing you wish your clients knew about making that transition? And how can advisors help those clients make the saving to distribution transition smoother? Yeah, I think the first, uh, so I've had a couple of aha moments, but I think the first aha moment was sitting down with my mom and dad. Um, I think it was in and around 1996, 1997, so four or five years in the business. And as I said, you know, my father's well-educated, college professor, PhD. And when I sat down with them to, you know, talk about their retirement, I was shocked on the lack of understanding about money and investments. You know, he had a pension, he had some social security, but they hadn't done a whole lot of saving for retirement. So it was at that point where I said, look, if somebody who's got a PhD degree um, doesn't understand money, doesn't understand the complexities around it, there's probably a whole lot of other people that are in the same boat. And, you know, that was in and around the time where we were hearing, you know, this wave of retirees, 10,000 retirees, you know, retiring each day. And 
I had the opportunity to meet what I refer to as the godfather of time segmentation or bucket planning, a gentleman by the name of Phil Lubinsky. Um, and I had the opportunity to meet him in the late 90s and just realized that there is a completely different skill set from an advisor standpoint when you think about the distribution phase of, of families and individuals' lives. And I think one of the taglines that I've used for years is that the investment and tax strategies used to accumulate wealth are inherently different than those used to distribute wealth. And like a good recipe, the magic is in the mix. Um, and I remember, you know, this whole concept of bucket planning and a lot of advisors do a lot of different versions of it. But I remember in June of 1999, I did a workshop and this was right before the tech bubble. And I'm in front of people who, in the Boston area, so the tech industry was pretty heavy back in the late 90s in the Boston area. And I'm advising people to take some of their money and going to a real safe investment for their first five years of retirement. And in June of 99, you know, people looked at me like I had seven different heads, like we're making 100% plus returns in this Munder net net or other fund. And you're suggesting that, you know, we get conservative. Um, and then of course, you know, six or seven months later, um, you know, we had the tech bubble. So for me, it was that there's a lot of work to be done on this side. Um, and I think, you know, it continues to be needed. The social security claiming strategies, which are complex, uh, the asset protection and the ultimate distribution of wealth. Um, so. Yeah, kind of I agree with you. There, I think there is a lot of work to be done. And some of this comes into play. It's a little bit of the theme of our discussion today, I guess. But the lack of communication from a cultural and generational perspective, pensions, while a fantastic tool back then, really set, I mean, my father is the same. They thought that's all they needed. They didn't have to learn what else was out there or didn't think they had to. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other cultural component really is, I don't know about you, but my dad would have preferred to bury his money in the backyard than trust a financial institution or a corporation with his money for many, um, many years. It took me a lot being in the business to convince him that, you know, there were better ways of improving their situation. So trying to break all of that down. Also generationally, I don't know how many of your clients fall into this category, but in a certain age, while they retired from one job, they went and found another. Mm. They didn't really retire. Whereas today, people are, we see people retiring earlier for lots of reasons. That, that, has, that whole shift has happened as well. And of course, pensions don't even exist for the most part. Um, so trying to educate everybody in this generational pocket, you're serving probably three or four different generations in your business in some way. Correct. And do you find yourself having to change the way you talk about these things, depending on who, what age the person is sitting across the table from you? Uh, absolutely, I do. I think the biggest hurdle that a lot of people who have done a really good job on the accumulation side is the mindset from, 
I'm going from earning an income to spending an income, right? I, I'm making the switch that I'm no longer saving, but now I'm in a spend mode. Whether or not, you know, the need is $500 more than, you know, their sources of income, but they're starting to withdraw. And for a lot of people, that in and of itself is a psychological conflict because it flies in the face of what they've been doing maybe for 40 years. Do you have any particular tools that you found helpful to have those discussions with your clients that you could share with the listeners? Yeah, I use so e-money, I think, is a, is a good tool. Uh, Income Conductor, I think, as a software is a good tool. But I also think there's a lot to be said to the old yellow pad um, in drawing and framing it from a, just a conversational standpoint. Pictures and stories. They don't go out of style. Uh, many other things do, right? Pictures and Absolutely. Stories. So you started the conversation talking about how you talked your way onto a team. That is a great uh, transition to the fact that you're a big, you're big on teamwork. You're a big team person. You talked about being an athlete. That usually leads to people who, um, if they thrived in that environment, enjoy being a part of a team. So you've built a rather successful practice with offices all over the East Coast. What are some of the things you look for when you're building a team? Talk about what what it looks like today and and how you've built it the way that you have the attributes that you look for in a team member? Yeah, I think first and foremost, it's somebody who wants to serve, who has the serving mind and serving heart. I think whether or not, you know, you're uh, an advisor, you're a, a, a support person, you know, we're always serving somebody. So first thing I look for is somebody who's willing to serve. And then second, it's somebody who's smart. I mean, we can always train to a job um, and a task, but it's hard to have people who are service-minded, smart, and willing to be team members. So I'm always looking for smart people, like I said, because we can always hire to the job responsibility. And I think the other thing that I look at is all things being equal, if people have played sports because I think just intuitively they then understand the framework of a team member. And then the other thing that I use um, is Colby. So I'm a big fan of, of Colby. And when I'm hiring staff, I'm using the Colby and I'm using the Colby fit because what I want to make sure of is that I don't hire somebody who has the same skill set as I do. I'm a quick start, but I'm not a really good implementer. So if my team member is also a quick start and not an implementer, then we're just going to get caught up in the wheel of, well, let's do this, let's do that. But we never get anything actually taken care of. It's one thing to use the tool Colby for you and your purposes as the leader to make sure that you're rounding out your team in the way that you need to at the time that you're hiring. Do you also train and educate the team members on what Colby is and how it works so they know how to work with each other? How does that work? Do you guys have sessions and, and talk about it? Yeah, uh, great question. And yes, so we'll go through their Colby. So, you know, if we're complimentary, you know, so their strengths are my weaknesses, then we do have a conversation um, about 
how they need to communicate with me, but more importantly, how I need to communicate with them. Just because in my mind, it might make sense the way that they're going to interpret it. So we do have those conversations. Talk about the team. How many are there? How, what are the roles? How do you break down? You've got your natural skills that you bring to the table as a team. And then how does that work to, functionally with the clients? So I have four uh, staff. Two of them are dedicated to the OSJ duties um, and the onboarding process of advisors as they join our organization. And then I have two other that are predominantly focused on my personal practice. And each person has their own respective role. Um, and again, it's two and two, but a lot of the times there's also overlap between the staff on either the onboarding of a new advisor or um, service issues around my existing book of business. Using our definitions here at Cambridge, we would say you're building an ensemble inside your practice where there's multiple advisors serving uh, one business. Do the clients know that yet? Do they understand? I, I'm not sure how old these people are. If you're building your next generation, it's a succession plan. That's usually a big part of trying to build these teams. But also the younger generations, probably starting with the younger end of Gen X, tend to like to work in teams better than the traditional solo route that so many of us started with um, 30 years ago. So how do the clients perceive that, do you think? Or how do you describe to the clients how the business works? Well, I had a, and I still do, so I've got a uh, board of directors, so to speak, of uh, clients. So most anything that I'm going to do, I'll run it by this group of current clients to get their feedback and how do we message it. So we've messaged it much kind of like what you said. I mean, I joined Cambridge in 2017, and after a couple of years, I realized that, I needed to figure out my succession, right? I mean, we talk about it all day to our clients and, you know, the proverbial, what happens, something happens to you, but here we are not really, you know, walking the walk. So I realized that I needed to figure out my succession. And so, you know, maybe three years ago, um, I went out and looked for a couple of advisors to potentially be that successor. And so the communication with the clients are, you know, here's an advisor, we're teaming together. That way they're intimately familiar with your financial situation in the event that something happens to me. Um, and you're right. The younger generation seems to want to work on some type of team format and we're finding the clients are really enjoying that as well. Um, that there's another team member that they have access to. Yeah, I would think it would be very reassuring. Follow-up question on your board of directors for those people. This idea is somewhat unique to because it's not a huge number that, that do that um, in their business. So how many clients? And how formal is it? Do you have formal meetings or is it just when you need them? 
Um, Pre-COVID, it was formal meetings. We were together four times a year on a quarterly basis. It usually consisted of a formal meeting followed by some type of, you know, small dinner where it was always agenda driven. Here's where we are. Um, So the current board, we have uh, six clients and their spouses as part of the group. Um, And since COVID, I think we've been together once, uh, but we get together quarterly and it's kind of state of the union where we are, um, some of our wins during the quarter, some of our failures during the quarter. And it's amazing the level that they'll go to, to help you out. That's really fascinating. Are they different? Is there a, an intent to have some sort of a diversified group of clients? So you've got six of them there. Are they different generations or different backgrounds intentionally so that you get feedback? I'm assuming maybe you bounce things off of them too, if you're thinking about doing something different in the business. Did you intentionally think about how to structure it or are they just your longest tenured there's no right or wrong answer here. I'm just trying to give people some ideas on what works and what doesn't when you're bringing this group together. Yeah. So most all of my business is that 60 plus age group. So they're all within that age demographic, but they come from varied backgrounds. So I've got a couple that are business owners. I have a couple that came from corporate America. And then I have others who have either been kind of in the teaching Uh, education world. I like that idea a lot. Thank you for sharing that with our listeners. I think that can be with constant voice of the client feedback loops are important no matter what kind of business you're running. So that's a really unique way to do it. Shifting gears a little bit. So you and your COO recently launched Libra Advisor Network. Explain that platform to our listeners and how you plan to leverage it. We're we're really, really excited. Uh, One of the things that we found when we were Recruiting, and as we continue to recruit uh, advisors, one of the questions is, do we have to join Bartlett Wealth Management? And the answer has always been no. Um, We've got planning for good. We've got Blue Line Financial. We've got Forbridge. So we've got other organizations that have their own identity. And so we wanted to, I guess, formalize that Libre Advisors Network, and and the term Libre is the Latin term for freedom, right? So we wanted to kind of put the word out that underneath the Cambridge umbrella and underneath, um, you know, what we're doing is freedom to build the business the way that you want to do, but with support and infrastructure. So the hope is that we use that as our kind of recruiting platform where somebody wants to join, they can tuck underneath, you know, the Bartlett wealth um, name or come in with our own name, but we're providing, you know, the turnkey transition. So one of the team members sole responsibility is to work with the advisor through the entire repapering process where we also do education, practice management, case design work. 
and then our tech stop and our tech support. Um, and then monthly educational meetings where we'll bring in an outside speaker to talk about, you know, something investment related, tax related. I've spent a lot of time in my earlier career working with strategic partners, CPAs and attorneys. So we'll bring those discussion, those conversations forth. And then I try every week, uh, you know, schedule permitting to do something called Anthony's Minutes, where I'll do a quick, you know, video slash audio on something that, you know, is, is, is topical. Again, whether or not it's a tax change or certainly what, you know, the discussion with the DOL and the continued um, progression of those conversations in Washington. Um, and then if you looked inside of our... Um, little logo, you'll see that there's an albatross within the circle. And we chose the albatross because the albatross term, you know, means freedom. It means protection. It means longevity, transformation. So it's a positioning um, as a way to kind of expand. And get, we're, we're not quite all the way up and down the East Coast yet, but we're working on it. Oh, congratulations. Well, you're making great progress and that's the important thing. So you mentioned three or four different organizations there. So are those other advisors potentially that branded themselves their own way and they tuck, they tucked under you for other services like you're describing, but that was pre this formalization of having this umbrella? Correct. Got it. Got it. Well, what you just described at the highest levels, certainly using that word freedom is a great segue into my next question. I just made an assumption earlier when you started your story that maybe the first place that you went to to work wasn't truly independent. Some things you just some some of the words you said just led me to that conclusion. And you're nodding your head. Our viewers can't see it, but you know we can, those of us in the business that are fiercely uh, independent can usually pick that out. So talk about the biggest benefits you found when you made the transition to true independence and why you think that's so important. Yeah, there's a little bit of a backstory that I think um, is important. So you're right. I started. Um, that ad for a financial advisor was really an insurance agent that if you wanted to sell an investment, you could. And I really kind of grew up in that world. And I was at the first organization for about a year Then I made a move and went to another insurance broker dealer operation. And the then sales manager and I became very good friends and he became a great mentor of mine. And so we popped between a couple of different organizations. And one of them probably had the best training program for business owners and high net worth individuals. And so in 1996, we were actually doing fee-based financial plans for business owners and uh, high net worth. And so we then left that organization. And at the time, I'm in Massachusetts, so I went down to Rhode Island to run an office down there. And I think at the time we had, and, and so this is, you know, 2000, we had 15 advisors and the industry just kind of went what we, the term that we used internally was green light. So this was in and around the time when CPAs could get licensed and offer financial services 
financial products. And so it was apparent to us that our advisors should team up with a local CPA. So I think we had six or seven licensed CPAs that were affiliated with us either directly or through one of the advisors. And a couple of changes occurred. And in 2016, I had the good fortune of serving as the national president for the Society of Financial Service Professionals. So, you know, an industry organization. And I got to see really what the world looked like outside of you know, that world. And, I, and I'm not saying anything negative about that world. Um, I think it serves many, many people very well. But at the time when I was the national president, the DOL was going through its first iteration of the fiduciary best interest. And while we were never an advocacy organization, clearly we were paying close attention to what, you know, the DOL was, was doing. And it became absolutely apparent to me, Amy, that in order to serve my clients in a pure fiduciary standard, I couldn't be affiliated with a company that has an insurance ownership with an insurance-owned broker-dealer. And, and again, I'm not saying that that's a bad model, but for me, it was, I can't have an internal conflict getting subsidized benefits if I do a certain level of X business. And so that's when I made the decision to, to make the move. And I went through, you know, a whole due diligence process and, and landed in Cambridge. Yeah, I hear that story a lot. And I agree with you. It's not that one particular model is unethical or evil in any way. To your point, um, there's a there's a model for many different journeys that people decide to take as they're building their business. But uh, there's this switch, you described it really well, I think, that is flicked inside of someone often when they're building their businesses that says, I need to be, I, I need to be independent. I need to be the decision maker and not have my boss tell me um, theoretically and, and actually what I should be selling and when and how and those kinds of things. Uh, really building their own journey is and becomes very important. Um, and so yeah. thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And I also think, Amy, it's, you know, when I look at independence today, I think that there's really only one true independent models. I mean, when I look through this, you know, offering back in 2016, you know, at the time there were the publicly traded uh, independents. And for me, I looked and said, okay, what's their business? What are they doing? They're trying to drive revenue to their shareholders. So they're independent, but they're owned by shareholders. So maybe not truly independent. And then you look at the private equity space. And I said, okay, well, what's the definition of a PE firm? Okay, package and, and resell. So it wasn't, in my opinion, it wasn't a pure independent play. And so it became apparent that, you know, in order to play in that pure independent space, it had to be a privately owned. And you and Eric and your entire senior leadership has been very clear that 
you know, this is not something that we're going to do. We're staying private. And that was one of the main reasons why, you know, I joined Cambridge. Yeah, me too. Uh, for sure. Because I'd been in the different seats, but same world as you. Um, and it does become really, really important. I'm glad that our commitment to internal control, and I ch we changed that term. You know, you've been here long enough. We used to say private, private equaled independence. And then we realized all the different nuances you just described. Private equity also got to say they were private. So the definitions become very, very important. But it really is to your point, Cambridge, knowing that for you to be able to control your journey, we have to control ours. And uh, together, then we build something fiercely independent. And hopefully, the politicians and the regulators will hear this podcast so that they can hear how passionate you are about wanting to be independent and not an employee. Um, because we know we're always fighting that battle as well. So thank you for sharing that. So um, Another one of my favorite times is when I'm wrapping up these podcasts, I like to ask the question about what you do outside of running your business, because one of the things and one of the reasons I hear a lot from younger generations about not getting into our business is because they think we're all a bunch of old workaholics, which might be true in some level, uh, speaking just for myself. But tell us what you do in your free time, Anthony. Well, the fall is... Uh great time for me. It's college football. Um, I think, as I said earlier, my father was a college professor at the University of Georgia. So go dogs. So um, during the fall on a Saturday, you're going to find me watching, you know, University of Georgia play and some of the other teams that I, I like. Um, I have a, or my wife and I have a 10 week old boxer. So uh, our house is in chaos, so uh, we like the dogs, and uh, I'm not exactly a huge fan of them when they're, they're although they're very cute. Um, boy, they are active and hyper. Um, we're outsiders, you know, so we like to hike. We like to bike. Love spending time. We have three children, so we love spending time with the family. Uh, actually, two of the three children with their significant others were able to make it down and joined us in Orlando. So that was special. Um, and then, you know, you'll find me putzing around out in the in the yard during the spring, summer and early fall doing some type of yard work. That's great. Well, what you just described for the listeners who maybe didn't realize it is that because you are your own boss, largely, is why you can fit all those things in that you like to do and enjoy, right? On your own time. And I think that's a point that gets missed. So thank you for pointing that out. Anthony, thanks for joining me today. Is there anything I should have asked you that the, you think the listeners could benefit from? No, I think that's it, Amy. I, I appreciate everything that you and, and your leadership team does. Um, you guys are great to work with and very, very happy that I made that move in 2017. Great. Thanks for trusting us and being a part of the Cambridge Nation. You're a great example of hashtag Cambridge Stronger. Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts. Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app.